0: CHAPTER Ten. Quentin enjoyed taking Reginald to his study for an after-dinner drink. Tom was sometimes invited, but knew from experience that he would not be drawn into the conversation. The last one he had attended was in 1925, when Reginald was seventeen and Tom fifteen. "'So, my boy,' said Quentin, pouring a large cognac for himself and a small one for Reginald and a glass of water for Tom, "'do you know that today a great treaty was signed?' between England, France, Italy, and Germany at Lacarno? Someone said something, said Reginald, reaching for the glass. He quickly sunk into his armchair, the possession of which had been the subject of pitched battles between himself and Tom in their early years, until Tom had realized that he was fighting against Reginald rather than for the chair, and gave it up, enduring Reginald's constant smirks of triumph whenever he got the chair without complaint, even now six years after the end of the conflict. This is very good news, said Quentin, and I wonder if you can tell me why. Well, said Reginald, swirling his glass under his nose, it means that Germany isn't being just treated as a conquered nation anymore. Yes, very good. It will pave the way for her entrance into the League of Nations, mark my words, and it means that England, France, and Italy, rather than just seeing themselves as the winners of the Great War, are now prepared to guarantee the borders of France and Belgium with Germany and... The Allies are removing the Military Control Commission and the last of the occupation troops from German soil. That will go a long way towards restoring Germany's faith in herself. Why Belgium? asked Reginald. Sorry? Why does the Treaty of Locarno guarantee the borders of Belgium when she's not even a signatory? Well, glance at the globe and tell me. Reginald leaned forward, twirling the globe at his feet, tracing his fingers over the borders of France. Because, because the French share a border with Belgium? Yes, but why else? Reginald sniffed. Don't know. Quentin grinned, leaning forward. Think defense. Hmm. Think Maginot. Oh! Yes. Well, said Reginald, excitedly jabbing his finger, the French are building the Maginot line on their eastern borders as a defense against the Germans, but not on their northern borders, which they share with Belgium. The great fear of the French said Quentin, sitting back with a grunt of satisfaction, is that Germany comes through Belgium in through the north, as in the Great War. Oh. So if Belgium is invaded, compromised, corrected Quentin. Sorry? Say, compromised. It's more sophisticated. Invaded sounds like you're still playing with lead soldiers. Reginald shrugged, all right. Then if Belgium is compromised, then England has to come to the aid of France, which means that Germany will have to think twice about coming at France through the north so France can focus on its defenses in the east against Germany itself. Very well, said Reginald. Tom was having a hard time keeping awake. Even the smell of cognac could do that to him. But tell me this, why is France mucking about in the east? The east where? asked Quentin. And yes, you can have another drink, you're eyeing it like a thirsty dog. Reginald got up and poured another. His father waved away his offer of a refill. The East, as in Czechoslovakia. Ah, Czechoslovakia, sighed Quentin. That mongrel will be no end of trouble, I guarantee it. Tom stirred. Why is it a mongrel? Well, France and England created Czechoslovakia out of thin air in 1919 and the Treaty of Versailles. It's a mess. It's a real patchwork. It's got Slovaks, Poles, Germans in the West, in the Sudetenland, and the Czechs themselves. Germany ruled it for 300 years, and now the tables have turned and the Germans living there, who did not ask to be thrown out of the Reich by their enemies, will not be happy until they are returned to the fatherland. What does Reich mean? asked Tom. Reginald jumped in. It's like kingdom or empire. Ah. So France is making treaties with Czechoslovakia. Continued Quentin, draining his glass and licking the rim, something he only did when Ruth was not around. Because the only thing that terrifies Germany, which as an ancient, noble, and most virile country is terrified of very little, is the prospect of a two-front war. Say Germany attacks France in the west, why then Czechoslovakia must attack Germany in the east? It's like a vice. It only works if both sides act at once. And it's the same the other way murmured Tom, thinking back on the garden strategies of many years past. Of course, if Germany attacks east into Czechoslovakia, then France must attack from the west. It's the only deterrent which will work. And if France attacks from the west, then so must we, said Reginald. Quentin crossed himself, God forbid. But yes, yes, we stand and fall with France. But those days will never come again. Never. Modern war has become so horrible that it remains... Unthinkable. That's the purpose of the League of Nations, to ensure that Europe never goes to war again. To get everyone to sit around the table and work out their differences with words, not guns. No, 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 not guns. No guns, no bombs, no grenades. Never again. Never. Quentin was quite sure what Reginald should do with his life. The Great War had arisen from misunderstanding. Another war would kill them all. Quentin himself was too old and also hopeless with languages. By the time he was 18, Reginald knew French, German, Latin, and a little Russian. He also had no difficulty making himself clear and remained unclogged by any traces of sentimentality. The Treaty of Versailles was never going to hold. Europe was about to undergo a radical revision, and all this had to be accomplished without violence. This was England's specialty— the empire was maintained with only a few hundred thousand troops. Play the dictators against each other, find a way to prop up France. In the infinite chessboard of continental politics, no principle was inviolate. Pragmatism was the key. Nope, without a doubt, it was to be the foreign office for Reginald. Quentin broached this subject most baldly when Reginald turned 18. The coming world was going to need smart men, international men, far-seeing men, men with the strength to rise above naive idealism. With Reginald's language skills, he would be wasted in any profession which was not pan-European in character. Thus, it was business or diplomacy. Business had its merits, it was a quicker path to power, but the power it provided was only financial. Business struggles could never compete with the subterranean clashes of great states. Returning value to shareholders was scarcely as gripping as shaping the future of Europe. Quentin, however, had faith in his son's ability to create a capital impression in either sphere. Thus, it was decided. Boarding school had done its job. Reginald had well absorbed the great upper-class British distaste for business. Money would prove a problem, but, as Quentin put it, that was more of a matter for the heart than the hands, for it was far better for a young man with ambition outside business to marry money than make it. In 1927, Reginald went to All Souls at Oxford to study economics, international relations and languages. Two years later, Tom followed without much enthusiasm or encouragement. Quentin had no conversation with Tom about the boy's future. He thought of it briefly, but it irritated him, even to imagine Tom's blank eyes staring at Quentin as his father lost track of his topic and wandered off into old war stories. There is nothing hard and sure about the boy. He is a wet towel, soppy. All the flaccidity of his mother has snaked into his bones, silly boy. The coming world will be a harsher one, requiring pragmatism, decisiveness, and industry. It will be no place for anxious people, no place for the sentimental. Hard decisions must be taken. Danger will not be avoided by taking to bed and crying about the unfairness of danger. The thirties will be a grim time, a time when weakness will be swept aside by will. When blinking across a table will mean the loss of your history. Reginald is the one to man the ramparts. Tom, (laughs) well, if they have no need of a wandering minstrel, where shall he go? He would trip over any proffered sword hide in the cellar with his mother, I suppose. Quentin's compassion was this. I will not talk with him about his future because I do not want to have to speak such awful truths. Tom knew all this, knew that he did not really fit into his family. This broke his heart because he was young and that meant that he did not yet know that justice is more important than loyalty and that justice is the only cure for a broken heart. He knew that his father did not respect him, but felt strangely strong in the face of this. He felt no desperate need to win his respect, which was odd, for he was a sensitive boy. Perhaps it was the chilling lack of compassion the family showed towards Ruth that did it. Tom was well aware that his mother needed some sort of salvation and that he could not provide it. However, he was comfort to her and that was something. It could also be because Tom had inherited his mother's atheism. Atheists are notoriously unimpressed by father figures. After the war, Quentin had gone back into business, relieved that his habit of cutting corners was no longer cutting throats. His war experiences gave him intimate knowledge of the process and supply of military goods, and he spent 1919 buying surplus aircraft from the Air Force and reselling them to civilian outfits, which disarmed them and sold them to private citizens. The value which he brought to the operation, he was, after all, a rather unnecessary middleman, was that his wealth of contacts gave him inside information as to where and when the planes were to be up for sale, as well as the chance for the first pick of the crop. Then he moved into real estate and flipped land and houses. A lot of property came up for sale in the early 1920s, since so many sons had been killed or maimed that retiring fathers had no one to will the family farm to. So endless tracts came up for sale, and Quentin managed a group of fit young men on bicycles who would scan rural newspapers, then race off with saddlebags of cash to press into the sweaty, uncertain hands of the old, grieving fathers. Quentin then had other men who oversaw the renovation— of these farmhouses into luxury cottages and others who sold them to the rising hordes of the nouveau riche. It was a trundling, distasteful, but stable business. Quentin knew enough about macroeconomics to realize that, due to the lack of young male labor in England and France, combined with the introduction of oil-powered merchant shipping, it was cheaper to import food from labor-rich America than grow it at home. So the price of farmland went down, but the demand for weekend retreats went up. He did quite well and was quite untroubled by the fact that he did not produce anything of value himself. Doing great wrong early in life, as was the case with his failure to supply grenades to the troops in the Great War, is very liberating because nothing else will ever feel as bad as that first catastrophic time. But even Quentin was quite unprepared for the rise of the stock market. Starting in 1926, at first in America and then around the world, stocks began to soar. Initially, this was due to rises in productivity, the introduction of the motor car, the creation by Henry Ford of the idea of the assembly line, but it quickly became a terrifying, glorious, obsessive ride. Stocks no longer had any relationship with the company they represented. They were traded as things in themselves. They had value because buyers would pay more for them than the sellers had paid for them. It was a pyramid scheme, a gamble, a mad scramble for a peak that was in fact a chasm. And Quentin, after a brief, uncomprehending stare, dove in with everything he had. He stayed up for days at a time, reading the newspaper, following the ticker tape, listening to the radio. His gains mounted, and some manic part of him felt that the hollow part of him could be filled with infinite wealth, and he began to make poor decisions. He sold the stocks which went up and kept those which went down. Thus, his portfolio became weighted down with non-performing securities. And when the crash came, October 1929, he held on in blind fury and terror, imagining every day that this was the lowest point that stock prices could possibly go and to sell now would be madness. The next day, they would be lower, and he would tell himself, today, today is the lowest. And then, then his margin call came in and everything fell apart. In order to buy more stock, Quentin had borrowed more money than his portfolio was actually worth. When his broker called, demanding that Quentin liquidate his holdings, Quentin avoided the phone, staring from the doorway. His forehead pressed into the cool wood. No, it cannot all be going. I will not admit defeat. Tomorrow comes the rally. It was no good. His stock's Crashed, his margin call came, and Quentin lost everything. And he kept this to himself for a long, long time. Chapter 11 Tom had a dream the night before he left to go to university and woke up weeping. In his dream, he was getting on a plane. There were throngs of people lining the runway, waving flags and blowing kisses. A mother held her small child, gripping its wrist, waving it at him. Tom was the pilot, and he thrust the throttle forward and was surprised how nimbly the airplane responded. It almost skidded across the runway, veering to one side, and a small knot of schoolgirls scattered as he roared past gaining speed. Tom pulled back on the joystick. The plane lifted, and then... Something odd happened. His vision began to flow backward through the plane, which was empty except for Gunther, who was reading a book hunched over in a front seat. Tom's view then flew out of the back of the plane and lay on the runway watching the plane fly off into a distant storm. As he watched, unable to move, almost without a body it seemed, the well-wishers stopped waving gathered their children, and slowly wandered back to a low building. Soon the runway was deserted. There was something awfully lonely about it. A seagull flew into view, then veered away out of sight. The wind picked up. Tom saw a windsock snap up and hold strong. The sky darkened. Nothing happened. The low building was dark. Everyone was gone. Time passed. He became fascinated by tiny details, the shape of a cloud, the silvery shapes in the blowing grass, the letters on the building fading into the dark. Everything was silent. It seemed like agony to wait. And there was something... Something in the scene that made Tom feel that no one would ever come here, back to this airfield, ever again. Not even the sun. After an eternity of waiting, Tom awoke suddenly, his hand in a fist to his mouth. The loneliness of the scene. In the dark, he thought of a childhood friend in whose house he had spent many happy afternoons. That friend had moved away to Canada, he recalled. There would be new people in that house now, or perhaps it had been torn down. One day, as a child, he had had to go into the kitchen to find a pair of scissors. He had opened a drawer and found all the little detritus of kitchenware, old placemats, rubber bands, a stapler wide open, a rusted potato peeler, a spool of white thread. Whatever happened... To all that stuff. Had it been sorted and discarded when his friend's family had moved? Where was that potato peeler now lying in some landfill, probably? It could never be found again, even if he searched for a thousand years. But, and this thought tore at him achingly, but where did that long-ago kitchen drawer exist now? It was gone in time, yet he recalled it. It lived only within him. But he really wanted, needed almost, to know that it existed in some place, somewhere which could be revisited like a museum of things lost to time. What a sad, wonderful thought. Everyone should have such a museum where the past can be re-examined in more detail, where everything can be revisited and poured over and thought deeply upon. It was nonsense, of course, but it made him yearn, oh, to go back, to cross through rooms frozen in time, to be a traveler through everything that made me, everything I passed through, to turn things over in my hand that have long since passed from my life. This was getting very silly. His stomach was tense, straining against old tears, old cries. Tom flopped over in his bed. I will go away to school tomorrow. And I'm supposed to burst into my future life like an airplane through a paper wall, but I cannot. Because... Because I have too many things in my wake and will never leave the ground. I should bring her, he thought, picturing Catherine, her warm eyes and worn hands. I will bring her, and my teddy bears, and walk through the library aisles, holding her hand and sucking my thumb, ignoring all jeers content in my oldest cot. His love for Catherine came to him then, after many years of teenage narcissism. Everything I have of value is hers. All my courage, all my clarity, the depth of my heart I owe to her alone. All my childhood I brought things home only for her. In a sudden tilting shift, he changed from remembering bursting through the kitchen door to show her a flower or centipede or tadpoles in a jar to seeing himself coming through that same door, from her viewpoint, and felt for the first time her patience with everything, everything he wanted to share. Almost never did she wave me away. He pictured Catherine sitting down to count the number of tadpoles, and explaining where frogs came from, and people too, he suddenly recalled, using ovens and dough and rising bread as most efficient metaphors. "'Oh, I have been most sad and ungrateful,' thought Tom as he swung his legs over his bed. "'Most glorious is the heart of a good woman.' He swung his feet uncertainly, and this, of course, recalled memories of Catherine swinging him and brought fresh tears. "'Standing up,' he wiped his face his eyes had fully adjusted to the darkness. He opened his door quietly and went downstairs. No house is the same in the dark. Empty floors are always lonely at night. Blackness robs life, even the memory of life. Squinting, Tom strained to see the time in the faint gold gleam of the grandfather clock in the hallway quarter of six, think so. He padded down the hall, through the kitchen, and into the back rooms where the servants lived. Catherine's room was in the very back. She had been with the family for the longest and had earned her view of the garden. I will probably terrify her and get a rolling pin to the head. Only once had he seen Catherine violent. A vagabond had tried to steal from her laundry line, and she had hit him with a rolling pin. She was screaming with fear the whole time. That had taught him a lot about courage. Tom knocked very softly. He thought he heard a sniff. There was a pause. He was too fearful to knock louder. Women awakened suddenly always expect to hear news of death. Then he heard, Tom? Yes, he said. There was a creak, then a pause. Come in, then, said Catherine, opening the door. A candle guttered in the little breeze. The grey light from the windows turned the room monochromatic. Tom entered, and Catherine went back to sit on her bed. There was something great about her. She had gained weight since he was a child, but it was not a slackness, or laziness, or the self-burying of sadness. There was something fertile about her size. With her brown hair down, he caught a glimpse of how she must have looked thirty years ago. He had an impulse to reach out and touch her cheek, but refrained. Why did she never marry? But who could be her equal?' "'Well, don't stand there like a post,' she murmured. "'Come and sit down, then.' "'Catherine,' he said, his voice catching. "'I hope she cannot see my tears in the dark.' "'By God, we are a pair, aren't we?' she sighed, deeply wiping her own face. "'Blubberous, plain and simple. "'I wanted sh—' "'Wait.' She took a deep breath. "'I hate crying silently.' She looked up, wagging her finger. And we have a secret, you and I. He sat down. She crinkled her eyes, then took a deep breath. So, you're off tomorrow? Today, he said. In a few hours. Are you hungry? He shook his head, his cheeks tightening. She sighed. Well, that was the point of it all, she said, her face turned away, making you all set for the big world. "'You don't know how much I will miss you.' "'He leaned his head forward slightly, feeling too old to hug her. "'She touched his forehead, brushing his hanging hair to one side. "'The light grew by one tiny shade. "'I have been a shepherd,' she said softly. "'This is not a happy house. "'We have a secret.' which is that we know love. It is God's gift, you know. It makes up for our deaths. Because we never die. Not when we love. Not for each other, not in our hearts, not for the world. That's all. That's all. She shook her head slowly. Tom sat in silence. I love you, Catherine. You're the only one who know she said, suddenly emphatic. Your mother loves you as well. Your father, yes, I think somehow. But they're scared. That's life without love. They want it so much, they knock it over when they reach for it. They make you pay for it. But they love you anyways. And they won't change. And that's your cross. Let's not, whispered Tom. No. I, uh, I would hate to leave this house, leave you in it without saying, that I know everything you have brought to me. All right, said Catherine, cupping his cheek with her broad, hard hand. I won't say anything about your poor ma. I love you too, Tom. You are the sweetest thing in this hard world. Her voice thickened. And I will also say, so that you know, That everything I gave you, everything you think I gave you, I got back more than a thousand times. And it wasn't because I wanted to give you something, but because the love of a child is the sweetest thing in the whole world. And I was greedy for it. Greedy for you? Because you have a heart as big as the sky, and no evil can come from you. I tried to love your brother as well. She said, her eyes widening slightly. I did. I did. I thought he was a test. I prayed to God for the strength to love that child. Catherine's voice broke. But I couldn't, and I will take that with me to the grave. I tried from every side. He will be... She took a deep breath. He will be a scourge. He is beyond our reach. Only God, only God... Everything you give that child he makes into a weapon. Watch him, Tommy. Watch him. I will, said Tom, reaching forward to take her hands in his. He raised them and pressed his lips to them. His brow furrowed deeply. Look at you, she laughed, averting her eyes. Chapter 12 Ruth's atheism was actually more of a subspecies of nihilism. It was not that she did not believe in God, but rather that she believed in nothing, of which God was just a small portion. Due to her losses, there was a certain amount of spite in her rejection of the divine. She was blessed and cursed with imagination, and felt bowed down by no small portion of the millions who had died in France. She could see them in her mind's eye, and not just them, but the millions who mourned, the whole world over, the farmers plowing up old bones, the helmets with holes in small French pubs, the endless photographs on the mantelpieces, each story a tapestry, a world within the world, all contained within history, falling behind. The dead cannot keep up, and neither can their stories. Memory rots faster than flesh. It is true that in every human heart, in the absence of self-knowledge, base instincts war with divine illusions. A woman may believe that the dead are in heaven, but she cannot lay the table with one less plate without placing her knuckles on the tablecloth and dropping tears. God may have his reasons, but they do not speak to her heart, her spine, her bloodied animal losses. And even if his wishes became clear after she is dead, she cannot imagine what knowledge she would have to possess to follow and love his reasoning. And to keep it hidden, to keep it hidden. What cruelty is that at the hands of a master storyteller? Even detective novels explain everything at the end, and to the same eyes which started the tale. No, none of it did anything for Ruth. The simple logic of the harshness of her test fell to the divine like an axe to the roots of an endless shimmering tree five men could not have been killed to test my faith. My father's faith survived his demise, she well remembered Mr. Eldred's tale of her father's clasped hands, but then my father did not have to survive his own death. He did not have to live on in the knowledge of his own absence. The same with my brothers, none of whom discovered the deaths of the others before they themselves died. Neither were the men taken because they were complete in their faith because her youngest brother was an agnostic. And her faith was unshakable before the absenting of her men. Now, it was a ravaging beast. Priests cowered at her passing choir boys, scattered like crows over a gunshot. Ruth's loss of faith was borne by Quentin, who had no particular ideas on religion. It became utterly unsupportable, however, when he decided to go into politics. One night, Quentin came and knocked on Ruth's door about nine o'clock. For a moment, she thought that Tom, who had just come in for his goodnight kiss, had come back to throw his large arms around her neck. But of course, as a semi-invalid, she knew of the terror of every knock, every location. Since she so rarely saw Tom standing up, She actually traced his growing height by noting the rising locations of his soft, knocking. Ruth frowned when she heard Quentin's voice responding to her query. She sat up in bed, hurriedly brushing her hair back under her nightcap, pinching her cheeks slightly. Such habits! How they cling to us! But he can't have come for that. I mean, it's been years, and without warning? No, it cannot be so unilaterally decided. And I cannot lie back and think of England, for when... He was above me. All I saw was France. Her husband entered with a tray. I brought you some hot chocolate. Thank you, she said, looking down. He came and sat on the bed. She felt the mattress tilt and wondered how much he weighed now and how his trousers stayed up under his growing belly. She touched her mug and felt an old anger in her veins. He never told me that it was too hot. Is it so hard? Dearest, be careful, let it cool. I mean, my God, how can you trust a man with your heart when he cares so little for your fingertips? In a sideways flash, all the uncorrected malignancies of her marriage came back to her. He was never quiet in the morning when I was sleeping. He cursed in front of the children. I don't care how young they were, they knew. He would tidy up by throwing their teddy bears across the room rather than taking five steps and putting them down properly. Why do men never flush the toilet? Are they marking out territory? If I was napping, he would come into the room and ask me a question without checking if I was awake and never apologize for rousing me. He never suggested going to visit my mother. Everyone gets his energy and attention but me. He has a civil word for the milkman, but no time for my thoughts. I am not at the bottom of the list. I am not even on the list. He can switch from enraged with me to gracious with a visitor within five seconds. I've seen it. And if he can do that for someone he doesn't even know, why not with me? Why not? Why? Her bedroom came back to her in a sudden thud. Quentin was looking at her expectantly. That peninsula of hair is being rapidly cut off, she thought. Pardon? She said. His lips compressed. Why don't you tell me where you left off? She shrugged. Her stomach rebelled, hidden under the covers. Why don't you start again, and I'll tell you. Well, I've decided to go into politics. I see. Why? I don't think business is for me. I want to do my part, my duty. Very well. A few hundred objections came into her head, each waving a glittering musket, but... She could not organize them, and she also knew that her opinions were rarely sought before a decision was made. Her head fell back on the pillow. What if we are destroyed financially? That thought should have frightened her more, but... But he will be destroyed more than I, and and it might do me good to have this bed yanked away from under me. "'He took a sip of his hot chocolate, seemingly unaware of the thoughts "'which lay under his wife's white nightcap, like rising lava under a snowy peak. "'Now I can scarcely hope that you will be intimately involved,' "'he said, knowing how disposed you are towards indisposition, "'but there is one matter which I need to clear up before setting out on this journey.' "'She lay silent. "'Your relationship with your maker,' he continued, "'setting down his cup on the night-table and turning to her.' Underwent, as far as I understand it, a rather serious blow with the tragedies of fourteen years ago. But I need you to begin engaging in a detente, as it were. Nothing much, just church, once a week, with me. No Hail Satans in public, he smiled. I don't believe. No, of course not, he said. And I have not the theological skill to gainsay you, yet it is required. It is required by you. He seemed surprised. Well, yes, in so far as it is I who am making the request, yet it is also required by duty. I believe that I have something of value to add to the debates of the coming decade. I am obliged then to press myself into the service of my country. Now, I don't envision anything so grand for you, but as my wife, it is your obligation to support me in my duty. She nodded slowly. How I hate that he is always on the side of right. For better or worse, this is a Christian nation, and I shall not get far with an atheist at my side. Once a week. Ruth, that's all I ask. I shall have to think about it. Quentin frowned. You believe that I am asking too much? I am not sure that anything good can come out of my compromising my beliefs. He snorted. Dear me, I am sorry, but what beliefs? Of course, spending your life in bed might be a certain kind of strike against the fact that soldiers die in war, perhaps, and good luck to you. I hope you achieve everything you wish for, but beliefs? I don't think that you lie here day after day because you are too good for the world. Hmm, she said, then raised her eyes to him. Then why, pray tell, do you think I lie here day after day? Quentin grinned humorlessly. "'Oh, we should not even approach that sleeping dog, hmm? I'm not looking for a row. I'm just a humble husband with a humble request. Come to church once a week. Dream of dynamiting it if you want, but be there. As I have said, I shall have to think about it.' He paused, pursing his lips. "'Well, you must excuse my scorn, dearest.' "'But I have heard that before, and it does not fill me with hope that things shall be resolved. "'A holiday? Let me think about it. "'A party for Reginald? I shall consider it. "'Getting out of bed for the garden party? Let's see. Yes, it's on the list. "'The committee will be meeting soon. "'No, it won't work this time, Ruth. "'I need an answer now, for I never get one when you decide to think about it. "'Yet I retain the privilege.' "'Nonsense!' he cried, raising his hands. "'You do not participate in this family, except to fawn over Tom.' "'You do not function as a wife, and not just in the base sense, "'but also as a friend, a companion, a partner in life. "'What privileges do you claim to retain, Hm? "'The right to lie like a toadstool and be fed and maintained without effort? "'Is that to be the sum total of your beliefs, sponge baths and slow decay?' "'It is now time for you to leave,' said Ruth, turning away, "'her heart hammering in her chest.' "'Quentin took a deep, shuddering breath and leapt to his feet. "'No.' No, I will not fall into your old trap of harsh words. Nothing of the sort shall pass between us. I need an answer from you now, tonight. You are free, of course, to choose your own response, but take heed of the consequences. That is my advice. Take heed. She smiled. Surely you do not imagine that you will be more successful as a politician if you are divorced, whose ex-wife is still an atheist, than if you are a married man whose wife does not go to church. No, uh, 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 of course not. I was thinking no such thing. Why must you always... His face softened a little, and he sat back down. Dearest, I, I have only two real arguments for you. The first is that, believe it or not, I am interested in politics partly out of respect for your late father, who was a great man. I believe that this coming decade will be most hazardous for the cause of peace. I want to do what I can to help avoid a war in Europe. The second is that should a war come, it is most probable that Reginald and Tom would be consumed, and I believe that our bloodline has seen enough death as it is. Ruth's breath caught and her face tightened. That, that, you... Cannot be using these words she slammed white fists into the blanket you cannot what my father is not to be used as a prop for you she cried and to speak of our sons sweet god in heaven what sort of man are you it is my conviction he said softly standing and turning away rail at me as you please but "'But, my dear, imagine what if I am right?' "'He turned back and leaned over his knuckles on her covers, his face close to hers. "'What if, without your participation, without your acquiescence to my single, simple request, "'events unfold, which cause a general conflagration, and more men fall into the pit? "'Do you think you could survive such a happenstance?' Her eyes were wide. But there is no need for such apocalyptic sentiments. Let us make a more simple barter. You feel that I have favoured Reginald over Tom, and we both know Tom has little or no direction in life. Let us clap hands on the following. After he graduates, Tom shall receive five hundred pounds a year for five years. I have asked our accountant that much can be managed if I win a position in Parliament with your help. His hands burrowed under the covers, found one of Ruth's and held it tight. This liberates Tom to pursue whatever talent he chooses, gives me the chance to do my duty, and liberates your conscience. What do you say, love? I have asked for so little these long years. Let us be a team for once, and who knows what might come of that. His forehead was glistening, and though she knew that it would cost her many sleepless nights, though she knew she would feel like hurling a lamp at the door within minutes of closing it, and though she knew that it would change nothing between them, there was Tom. And the terror of another war flattened her resistance like an ant under a falling anvil. I will come to church, she said, closing her eyes. Chapter 13 Overall, Tom's childhood had been a dizzy, flickering array of light and dark, from the brittle distance of his father to the invasive closeness of his mother. Like many untutored youths of high potential, his true self and true power was buried under a kaleidoscope of contradictions. He did not know how to live, and so skittered over the surface of things, relying on youth, looks, energy, and easy charisma. Seeing Tom lope along in the sun, bowling in cricket whites, leaping for a tennis shot, or sitting tall in a rowboat, feeling his muscles pulse like charged ropes after a match, no one could imagine that he was not an easy, genial arrow poised at the deepest pull of a bowstring. Everything seemed easy for tom everyone knew him and he was good at so many things that it seemed impossible that his brow should ever knit under excessive strain he was greatly envied and it was the envy that brought heart to him tom was not empty but he was so submerged that for a time at least he might as well have been His graceful, oiled ease brought many young men into his orbit, but none of them could provide the spiritual nutrition that true friendship depends on. But something happened when Hart finally got the nerve to introduce himself. Hart came from a coal-mining family. He had all the night terrors of a compulsive trespasser rising, as he had, through the thick social strata of English society. He had survived a childhood of endless casual brutality, not in his family, but among the other children of his small Welsh town. Those with neither ambition nor potential see their zoo as freedom. They only feel caged if they see someone eyeing the woods beyond the bars. Hart was small, slight, short of sight, and narrow of chest. Nature, in her infinite wisdom, often places a powerful mind in a brittle body, adding a great deal. To the theory that abstract intelligence is one of the scars which forms over physical defenselessness. Hart had white skin so reflective that others often got better tans by standing near him. He had lank, flat, dirty, reddish hair and thick eyebrows which always seemed to consider joining hands across the bridge of his nose. A wide herd of raw horsepower churned away between his ears, racing in apparent confusion across a plain which seemed too hot for their hooves to stand on for any length of time. Other people swam back and forth across his mostly inner vision. They could not help him, and the force of their arguments often caused a mad inner stampede to some new vantage point of absolute truth. Since he was usually directing his horses from behind, this meant he was very often trampled most gruesomely in the sudden turnarounds. He joined the debating society hoping to meet argumentative people like himself, but instead only met smooth and polished young men, warming up their fruity, mellifluent voices for political careers. He stuck at it for most of his first year, but exasperated both himself and others by constantly turning around the thrust of his argument during a long debate. He would start by arguing that the pen was mightier than the sword and then end up stabbing himself with the sword. It was annoying to both himself and his opponents, who arrived limbered up for heavy swordplay only to see their opponent leap forward, brandish his blade, and then throw himself on the floor and commit coddy. Hart was constantly evasive about his origins. He never tucked postcards from his parents into the corners of his dresser mirrors for fear that some curious soul might turn them over and see his parents' large, childish, all-capitals missives. He worked tirelessly to up-crust His accent, which was quite foolish, of course, only a certain section of British society rejects on rank alone, and these are people scarcely worth courting. A scrappy Welsh miner's son striding into all saints in a great blaze of heavily accented assertion would have aroused great curiosity and genuine respect, alas. Hart had enough confidence to get there, but not enough to believe he had the right to remain. But... Just as he was adroit at manufacturing imaginary enemies, so he was good at imagining friends. The first time Hart saw him, Tom was coming up the steps from the dock after a long rowing practice, his thick arms humming with sweat and spent strain. He was wiping his face with a white towel, and Hart felt faint at the sight of Tom's dark, perfect, glistening hair. Tom flopped down on the grass, chatting with some of the other rowers, and soon a girl came up with a tray of iced tea. Hart sat up on the grassy hill, staring at them, sweating in his thick cotton, feeling a chilling dribble of sweat down his spine, fighting, as he often did, the urge to scratch just about every nook and cranny he possessed. He loved them all, all the rowing men. They chaffed each other about athletic errors, casually planned their weekend social activities, sucked ice, discussed women, and outlined vague travel plans. There were so many amazing... Things about Tom, what struck Hart the most was how Tom's hair dried into a perfect side part. All he had to do was rake his hands through his hair a few times and it all fell beautifully into place. Hart loved them all, but there was a faint, grim hopelessness about his love. They were everything he wanted to be. They were a polished advertisement he desperately wanted to climb into. Staring at them, he felt the oldest, most devilish bargain charge through him. I would trade all my depth for their beauty and seeming ease. They were mere clouds over his deep sea, but he wanted nothing more than to dry up and join them in the sky. Hart's face was pale and still throughout those two hours. When the rowers left, he sat for over an hour more, staring at their bench. Now I must plan the great seduction, he thought, his heart racing. I must shed all my tension just long enough to be accepted, and then that acceptance will prevent its re-emergence. But but what do I have to offer these lean, lithe gods? They already have ease and beauty, which I have not. I could be a keepering jester, whose base accent and homely tales could provide brief amusement between successive chippies, but I am a wretched storyteller and have no humor. "'Could I be a curiosity, a silent, harmless tag-along, "'who is allowed to allay their fears of being snobs? "'Could I accept the role of wet-eared younger brother to the alpha males? "'Could be, could be no harm in that. "'Of course, they will never send me notes about their secret gatherings, "'where they tan and stretch and exercise, "'but should I wander into their midst, I will not be shooed off. "'They may speak of me a little, "'the irritated bewilderment of some vying with the social charity of others.' "'What does he want? "'I say, be a good chap, give him a bone, "'no friends far from home, not exactly in his element, hm? "'Well, of course I am not in my element, not yet, "'but I shall be, I shall be.' "'Now Hart was not a fool, "'neither was he utterly without self-knowledge. "'He knew as much about himself as an anthropologist can learn "'about a tribe before he learns their language. "'He knew that he was embarking on a course rife "'with potential creepiness.' "'But if I should achieve my goal, ah, then I shall be a hunter of legend among we outcasts, "'to bring down an alpha friend, oh, sweet triumph of exclusion! "'But I must be patient, so patient, to charge into their midst with neither preparation nor knowledge "'would scatter them like haughty eagles. "'No, I must learn their quirks, their little loves, the tiny tickings of their flawless hearts.' Hart began to watch them. He haunted the libraries and tried to read their laughing lips as they conducted their study groups in glass-walled offices. He sidled up beside Tom to see what kinds of books he took out. He watched their cricket practices changing hats each time, so as not to seem intrusive. He had less luck with clubs. Tom's talents lay so far outside his own that a random crossover seemed impossible. Hart was in the chess, math, and astronomy clubs. Tom did most of the glory sports, rugby, tennis, cricket. No football, no, of course. Not that would be far too lower class. However, Tom was in a few non-athletic clubs, the most promising of which to Hart's eyes was the Shakespeare Association. One morning, Hart went up to the SA and inquired about its meetings, but the young man behind the desk knew and it was most embarrassing. Hart tried to get it right. He wore black, slept little, and chewed a hole into the elbow of his jumper. Somehow, though, it was still clear that he was not a literature student, and so was about as likely to be interested in poetry as in Dadaism. Still, he managed to get a syllabus of what they were reading. This month it was Hamlet, and he went to the library to read it. It was like a shot of Novocaine, straight to his central cortex. He tried again, and again, normally he was a light sleeper, but the Dane felled him over and over like a tireless sniper. He drooled so much that he awoke dizzy and confused from dehydration. Yet it didn't matter what else could he do? It was the only in he had. He was still more likely to comprehend Hamlet than come out of a rugby game with the same number of ribs he went in with. He studied the play as closely as he was able, which was hard, hard. This is what it must be like to study at high altitudes, he thought one night before losing consciousness with such force that not only did his nose hit the desk hard enough to bleed, but even that impact did not awaken him. Drool was easy enough to get out of paper, blood was almost impossible, and Hart was forced to purchase the play, which caused him great pain. Tom's group met on Wednesday nights, and after a few nights of intermittent blackout, studying Hart felt well enough prepared to come and, with any luck, make his first contact. He dressed, nervously taking great care. I know that I am not good-looking, so there's no point trying to be snazzy. I don't even have the kind of horn-rimmed homeliness which can be insouciantly cool. He got a haircut, nothing too short, because his ears protruded at such an odd degree that sprinting made a roar in his brain. A nice shave, he imagined being Hamlet, monologuing at the mirror Begone, thou eight hairs of almost manhood! A little cologne, and he was ready. He considered leaving behind his copy of Hamlet in order to ask Tom to share, but that seemed just too. His first impression should not be that he was incapable of remembering to bring a book. That just screamed parasite. Hart did not want to be there early, because that would not give him the chance to sit next to Tom. He did not want to arrive late, however, since all the chairs near Tom were likely to be taken, he could not be the only outcast looking for the Golden Gate back to the tribal core, so he hovered outside the room where the meeting was to take place, pretending to take great interest in the adverts for shared rides, second-hand books, and the slightly desperate script-for-cash offers. After twelve people had gone in, or... About twelve, he couldn't decide about the last gaggle who passed by peripherally he was afraid of staring. Hart panicked and rushed in, his cheeks and neck hot with fear, and found that it was quite a small room, about twenty chairs, and that men were clumped around in groups designed to point out to any newcomer the isolation of any bitter loners like himself. So Hart decided to sit near enough to a group that when Tom entered, he could pretend to be rooting in his rucksack, He was not excluded, just turned away from his boon companions, just for a moment. But when the golden statues of the rowing men came floating in, the chilling union of Greek beauty and English reserve, Hart barely dared to glance up. They circled Tom like a Nordic phalanx, sitting in a circle around him. They all talked at the same time. Hart normally hated that habit, but didn't expect, should he actually end up in this tribe, to end up speaking a whole lot and the verbal play-fighting continued as it always did without interruption or abatement. They mocked as gods would mock secure in their power and unable to die. A few minutes after seven, the door opened again so slowly that it seemed to be shifted by an errant breeze. An elderly man came in supported by a balding young teacher's assistant. The old man was clearly a professor, because he had obviously gathered so much abstract knowledge that little matters like personal hygiene were as relevant as ants to an elephant. Deep knowledge seems to mark out its occupants with rank stench, much as a dog marks its territory with pee. Thank you, said the professor, reaching his desk and leaning knuckles down upon it. This was, for Hart at least, a vaguely simian gesture which brought to mind a very wise and utterly bald orangutan. The T.A., hovered behind him, perhaps waiting to catch him should the force of the great man's thoughts lean him too far to one side or another. The professor squinted at them. "'We are studying Hamlet, as you know, and we left off last week with the edible problem of Gertrude and Hamlet.' and now are interested in the possible degeneracy of the relations between Hamlet and Laertes. Why do they want to fight? Many men who fight over a woman are secretly in love with each other. It is not the woman they want to seduce, but in fact each other. Thoughts? You? An ancient claw came up and jabbed at heart like a toothless snake old beyond years. It's my first time, said Hart, thinking. Bolly Hart, like old man, you're about to look like an idiot. Do you think that Hamlet is not about unnatural sexual love, the love of a boy for his mother or his friend? Convention says that Hamlet must avenge his father, but he cannot. Convention also says that Hamlet must love a woman, but he cannot. "'His inclinations run elsewhere. "'The Oedipal Theory of Hamlet is interesting "'because Oedipus is a Greek play "'and it is used to describe this play "'which has a Greek theme. "'Sexual love of the mother "'always leads to sexual love of the brother, "'so to speak,' comments. "'Heart was dizzy. "'Lord, above, is this what they do in English literature? "'Random perversity 101? "'I think, well... I am a history major. Ah, interesting. We haven't had a history man in here since, oh, what, 1891? But Hamlet is not a history play other than family history, which in fact reaches to prehistory in our collective intelligence. Comments! Hart shifted. He could feel that Tom might be looking at him. He desperately wanted to confirm this, but was afraid that his eyes would give too much away. "'Take me to your cloud kingdom.' "'Well, sir, I think that... "'Well, Hamlet is an aristocrat, right?' "'He could feel the creak of eyes widening of laughs gathering "'as his accent shouldered its viking way into the delicate gathering. "'But aristocrats are warriors to begin with, "'or were since the fall of the Roman Empire. "'Violent overthrows would not have offended them. "'But Hamlet is a change in aristocracy of aristocratic thinking.' He wants to substitute right for might. He is the first glimpse of humanism and rationality over the medieval horizon. There was a pause in the room. He knew what it was. The thoughts contrasted with the accent. It's like hearing Beethoven played on a set of spoons. That wasn't what Hart wanted to leave them with. He plunged on. See, the uncle kills, takes the throne. Very primitive, but better for Denmark. I mean, this is the Dark Ages. Hamlet would be a terrible warrior king. Gertrude marries the uncle again. Practical. Women were drawn to the most powerful warrior. Hamlet's father must have gotten weak or lazy to fail to notice a usurper skulking around his gardens. So far, the pair of them have not distinguished themselves as warriors, so the father is killed. That's a fair way to overthrow a warrior. Now, if the uncle were in Hamlet's position, he would have killed the usurper, not for the sake of right or wrong, but for the sake of power. But Hamlet doesn't. He wants to know if his uncle actually did it. That makes no sense from the standpoint of a warrior. Who would care? Power, the force of arms, courage and daring, that's the right of succession among warriors, not facts, evidence, and juridical morality. But Hamlet needs to have right on his side to act and reason. That's the problem with the ghost. I mean, if I had a vision telling me to kill someone, I'd stop and think as well. It's the difference between Abraham And Hamlet, that's the difference between a warrior society and a humanistic, just society. But Hamlet was ahead of his time. He was an enlightened man trapped in a medieval world. He wanted right in a world where only might held sway. And I imagine that there were a lot of people like him, people who wanted to do the right thing before legal protections were in place, and were cut down. I've been talking too long. It's a bad habit. I'll be quiet. There was a pause in the little room. The T.A. leaned forward. The professor leaned forward. And young Hamlet's desire to fornicate with his mother? I don't... I don't see that as much. So why didn't he act? That's the mystery, isn't it? Why didn't he kill Claudius? Well, he needed a court of law, but there was no such thing. He didn't have the brutality to take the law into his own hands, especially with such flimsy evidence, which I think is true of most of us. I think that's all of it, that's all. Interesting, croaked the professor, and Hart suddenly saw the old man in a smelly room, feeding at least three cats with no photographs of relatives on his mantelpiece, and felt very sad, as if he had kicked a blind man. I think that the historical perspective is always of relevance, but I think that your view does the genius of the play scant justice, or, if it does, that it amply reinforces the genius of Shakespeare who could create works capable of absorbing multiple perspectives. The rest of the lecture continued, but Hart couldn't follow it. The play, in fact, seemed to be a barely restrained medieval incest orgy. He felt... "'dizzy and wanted to be gone. "'I hate shining my light on muck,' he thought. "'Tom did not look at him the whole time, "'and Hart felt a great bitter disappointment. "'So he's just a great gorgeous muckraker after all.' "'Hart had visions of himself "'climbing great snowy-capped mountains "'far above the eating industrial acids of academia, "'with Nietzsche, perhaps. "'The professor's head leaned "'Further and further forward as the class wound down. "'Apparently there was a preordained angle "'which indicated that he was done "'because the TA began levering him back "'to a standing position, almost in mid-sentence, "'and students began to pack up. "'Heartfelt. Lethargic. "'The smell of mothballs hung heavily in the room. "'He was the last one to leave. "'In the hallway, Tom was standing in front of the bulletin board.' Hart's eyes widened slightly. My God, even his stubble is perfect. So few men can get away with that. Tom grinned at him. All right, so that was a bit of all right. He's been separated from the herd, cried a possessive part of Hart's brain. Strike, strike! But his predator patience asserted itself only slightly more strongly. Don't babble. Don't try and make jokes. Don't try to be clever. Don't impress. Listen and be easy. What were you doing there? asked Tom. I was just curious what's going on in the other tents, that sort of thing. Professor Turgin is rather... Yes, rather... Don't, No, don't imitate his accent. Well, I thought you had something of great interest to say, more than I'd have in one of your classes. That took guts, and... Do you think it's true? True? Tom nodded, and something very intense flickered into his eyes, which did not escape Hart. True, you know. Some people say clever things, and some people say true things. Which are you? I think true. That's how I'd like it. Hart felt a despairing panic. Brain seizure! The hunter has become the hunted! Tom grinned suddenly, and Hart wilted before the full searchlight of the young man's charisma so let's get a coffee. Hart did not drink coffee afternoon because of his light sleeping habits, but he drank three cups with Tom that night, and they stayed until the cafeteria closed. They had many things in common. Neither of them had any idea what they wanted to do with their lives. Neither of them were close to their siblings. Tom had more physical courage. Hart had more intellectual courage. They talked for many hours. The first topic was modern literature. There's just this perception that there's something dirty in society, isn't there? asked Hart. Everything is rape and incest and taboo topics. Well, that comes from the war, of course, said Tom. "Hmm?" These supposedly Christian civilizations went to war, and the only evils which they refused to employ were torture and cannibalism, and they refrained from those only because they were of doubtful utility. Hart frowned. "'But that wasn't the world, Tom, right? "'Some have called it a world war. "'But it wasn't the world that was corrupt, Tom.' "'In his shy, excited wonder, Tom could not resist the temptation "'of using Tom's name every chance he got. "'It wasn't as if the world went mad.' "'Tom ran his fingers through his marvellous hair, "'then narrowed his eyes at heart. "'You don't think the world went mad?' "'Oh, heavens, no! "'Don't overfruit your accent now of all times!' Look at it this way. A man gets a terrible infection. He lies in bed, thrashing in his own sweat, his eyes rolling, cursing in ancient Aramaic, I don't know. Do we stand at his bedside and say, Good Lord, his body has gone mad! No. He has been attacked by a virus, and he is defending himself. There is the attacker, the instigator, and the defender. The world has not gone mad when a good society defends itself against barbarism. In fact, the refrain from fighting would have been madness. We'd all be shouting... In German, preparing to destroy the New World. Tom seemed very emotional all of a sudden. I see. That's interesting. Hart hesitated, then took the plunge. You lost a lot of family in the war. This was the constant danger of conversation in the early 1920s, bringing up the war, treading on old wounds. Now, among their own generation, it wasn't so bad. Fathers had vaporized, of course, but they had never been around long enough for bonding, so it was all very abstract. It was quite another thing, though, to refer to depressed mothers. You know, said Hart, feeling his way towards the topic with a far greater degree of emotional sensitivity than he had ever conceived himself capable of, it's these bloody Marxists who have killed our capacity to mourn our fallen... "'What?' stammered Tom. His eyes were glistening, and from more than charisma this time. "'They say that war is an inevitable consequence of capitalism. "'All history is class conflict, inescapable, "'a mere struggle for power without moral consequence. "'Our fathers fell in the service of war profiteers, nothing heroic. "'They were pawns on the chessboard of international business, nothing more. "'Not defenders of our noble island, not the saviors of civilization, not heroes. "'Not heroes, just fools.' "'Don't make me cry,' said Tom, sharply looking away. "'I'm enough of a blubberer without you pouring it on.' "'How many?' asked Hart softly. Five whispered Tom, his voice catching. "'Mother's side. Fathers? All mothers. "'Oh, Tom,' said Hart, staring at Tom's forearm, "'willing his own hand to stillness. "'I'm sorry.' "'What about you?' Well, everyone in my village was just happy to get out of the mines. They toasted it in the pub. Here's to a red death instead of a black lung. Hart laughed softly. (laughs) They all joined up early. Attrition is statistically very powerful. Seventy percent. Weren't they needed in the mines? Some women went down and kids. And your family? Hart shrugged. Two cousins? It was unbelievable. My father... Two uncles on my mother's side. Three on my father's. They all came back. Not a scratch. We were a new religion in town. The Miracle McDowdys. We always had an irreligious streak. Now they say the devil looks after his own. That's... Of everything I've heard, that's the most... We're not far from Langolan. Do you know we lost more women and children from domestic bombing than men from overseas bullets? There was a pause. So... "'Tell me about your mother,' said Hart, imitating a German accent. "'The standard. "'Depressed. "'Do you get along with her?' Tom grimaced. "'More than anyone else in the family. "'I kept her happy. "'You know,' Hart paused, "'it seemed that their conversation was a series of steps, of precipices, "'but this next one seemed the greatest.' Tom took a sip of his coffee. Cold. Go on. Well, your lot, it's like you were all shipped in from some planet that never knew war. My lot, the rowers? Yeah, and the cricketers, and the rugby men. You're all so jaunty. Tom stared at him, then cocked his head slightly. And so? All the goodness cannot vanish from the world. Hart paused, and the electric intensity of their sudden intimacy seemed to pass through him in a shudder. "'All joy cannot be forgotten,' continued Tom, then looked back at Hart. "'You know, I never thought that about Hamlet, that he was a man struggling to be good before there was such a thing as goodness, that his struggle helped discover goodness, that there was nothing incestuous in his nature.' Hart said nothing. "'But my joy is nonsense,' continued Tom. "'I mean, it's not, of course, in the here and now, "'but I have no idea where I'm going. "'But it's more than me, all of us. "'You think of the past, it pulls you down. "'You go forward without it, you're empty, "'so I just play for now.'" "'My God, does the man have any idea what he's saying?' thought Hart, on the verge of tears himself. "'He's like an oracle, which cannot translate itself to itself.' "'So, tell me about your family,' said Tom, after a moment. "'Well, me dad is smashing,' grinned Hart, suddenly shrugging off their collective burdens. "'He's this great prehistoric beast of pride, always bringing me seconds and cuffing my brothers for not applying themselves more, like me, the golden boy.' And your mom? Quiet, reserved with that eerie, calm, rural dignity. There's nothing she can't handle. She gave birth in the barn. She's three foot from hip to hip. She likes to sing. She never plays favorites, and praise from her is as rare as a winter swallow, but there's nothing she wouldn't do for us kids. She's all deeds, no words. My dad talks more, but he's a rock too. And your brothers? Oh, they're great. Livestock, actually. Envious, of course, a little. They think I'm breaking free to go to great fancy balls in the big city. I asked them if they liked swatting, and they said no. Cracking a book was getting a headache. So I says, that's where I'm going, what I'm doing, studying. They says, more power to you, then. The other kids, though, you know in the army apparently have to run through a row of men who beat you with oars? That was like going through my school. I was happy to be smart. It means you're never alone, rarely lonely, not often bored. But I was putting on airs, of course, and thought the less of everyone else. "'Suppose I was, of course, but what is the harm in that?' demanded Hart, his eyes gleaming dark. "'I mean, smarter is better, right? "'And I would have only thought them a little worse, but they beat on me so. "'And that was a lot worse in my mind than teasing me about being Mr. McBrain. "'And fight back? Biology is destiny, you know, don't fool yourself for a second. "'Something harder had come into the delicate discourse, and Hart forced himself to stop.' You're not as resigned as he is, not as sweet, so shut up. Sorry, he muttered. Tom smiled. No problem, we all have our crosses to bear. He glanced at his watch. Now, as to the time... They said their goodbyes awkwardly, and Hart wandered back to his dormitory room, utterly dejected. It seemed that such tenderness was only to be in passing. For days passed, and he never saw Tom.